0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey Rob.
1: Hey Paul, how are you?
2: All oh, good, good to see you. Yes, yes, sorry, sorry I couldn't mic uh, the other day. We went on daylight savings. Do you all do daylight saving? Yes, you know I'm from, I'm
1: in Sydney, Sydney side. As <laughs> we don't quite understand why we have to do it, but yes, <laughs> we still
2: do it. <laughs> hey Dan, good to see hey you. Hey Dan.
3: Hey guys, good to see you both.
2: Dan, I just, I just realized you had sent me. I was reading through your email. It seems like you're getting a good handle on it.
1: You're doing really well, Dan. I I, I was reading. Sarah this morning, and I'm thinking, my goodness, what did she just say? Let me read that again. So it's,
2: it's. <laughs> She writes in a subtle fashion, maybe that's the way to put it. She's, she's British. She's British. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, I guess. I guess, so. I guess so, what she's calling a church-type Christianity, really, she doesn't put it this way, but really a Constantinian Christianity. There's going to be a theological shift. People who have a strong attachment to the Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, they might resent the characterizations that some would make of the Constantinian shift. Are you familiar with, with that? Terminology, then
3: Only because of 14 shares The first class we did, like, right. a Peaceable kingdom. And this was talking about the Constantinian shift, how there's this kind of, like, predominant thing within Christianity that we are the conquerors. It, like, sort of ties into, like, violence and atonement yeah. theories, potentially, but also, like, this whole thing of Constantine with his soldiers with crosses on their shields, and yep. that is Christianity, of taking <laughs> the methods to... Yeah different nations and i think it was relevant to new zealand because we had the same experience that a lot of countries have where missionaries come down here and completely reorientate the native way of life which is over the Maldives down here and just like dominated everyone into wearing westernized clothing and wearing westernized and speaking english and you weren't allowed to speak your native language, you got punished for it. and this all fitted within Christianity. And that was my point of reference to the Constantinian shift, which I think is what you're talking about. Yeah, that's all new to me, that whole sentence there.
1: So people like Sarah Coakley and Oliver O'Donovan. So Oliver donovan uh, Dan is like so you're familiar with Stanley harwas right? The Peaceable Kingdom?
3: Only from this class, so yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, Oliver Donovan would be like his, uh, his his nemesis in a nice way. So, people like Oliver Donovan and Sarah Coitley, they, they're like Constantinian Christendom. Like, they work within the system, right, Paul? Is that to my Anabaptist, nonconformist way of, to me, they're still, I don't know, is that fair, Paul? It might be a bit unfair of me.
2: No, I think, and that's sort of the tension. You know, somebody like John Howard Yoder, John Howard Yoder, what he called it the fall of the church. And that's actually a fairly common way of referring that, like the fall of Christianity. And so low church people like myself would see the Constantinian shift primarily as a takeover of the the church. Of course, somebody that was Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, they don't view it with that negativity. They would make the point, Well, the church had to do this to survive. What were they supposed to do? Would you rather that they be persecuted? And so they could make some good points. And I I think that Coakley, even though she herself is Anglican and, you know, there is a state church there. I think she's painting a reality, you know, or Ernst Trelch is painting. I mean, we just have to deal with the sociological reality that in some sense we all face. You know, I'm about as low church as you come, be called a free church or independent church or a congregational church. But nonetheless, you know, I use the word institution, and I know that's a kind of ambiguous term. I haven't come up with a better term, but I think we're all involved in some form, you know, if you meet, if two people meet <laughs> and they decide something, there's the wow. sense that, well, that's, they've institutionalized themselves. So I, it's not that we can do away with the institution, but I think the recognition here is that there needs to be a continual critique of and correction and steering, at least from a low church understanding. And I he- I sometimes hesitate even to use the word Protestant. You know, Protestant is you're not Roman Catholic, or I'm protesting against the Roman Catholic Church. The particular group that I've been associated, I grew up here in the States, is Christian Church. Restoration movement, yeah, yeah. And of course, that's fairly presumptuous in and of itself. Restoration, oh, we're going to restore, as if you could do that. Or even if you would want to do that. And so the church has always been in this, uh, there's always been this tension, but I, I'm just happy to live in the tension. In other words, I think, You're happy? We just, well, I'm not happy. <laughs> you, have, you have no choice. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's, that's just, I think we just have to reconcile ourselves. I just take the three Ernst Treltsch's sociological description as a reality. I don't know what you do about it. That's just the way things are. You know, she's working with an Anglican church. Mm. And of course, in the Anglican church, there is a group that has broken away, a kind of sect. They're still part of the group, they're charismatic. It's not that any group oh, can okay. escape these sociological realities. People, when they can gain power, that they're going to do that. And institutions are means of wielding, gaining and wielding power. The hierarchy that you get in the Roman church, or, you know, it's there in any church, but especially hierarchical in the the Roman church. Uh, But that's just going to happen with any group of people. A group of people creates a potential power, a place of power. It's just nearly irresistible. You can't stop that. I don't think. And so we just have to live with that. In other words, for Coakley and for the early church, she is returning then to this focus on Romans 8.
1: That with Romans 8, you've got the spirit as the entry point, the one who initiates us into the life of the Trinity. Uh, And so she calls it incorporation, a view of incorporation. And so in chapter 8 of Romans, you have the whole the life of the Trinity and the by the key role of the Spirit in enacting, facilitating, initiating us into that life. Is that that's
2: it? Yeah. What yeah. would be the characteristics then that we're looking at that she is focused on? But they're really just there in Romans 8 as to how this incorporation unfolds.
1: Is that around the desire and and the desires of the, the mind governed by the flesh, controlled by the flesh, as opposed to controlled by the spirit?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's endless things you could talk about, and desire is one of them, uh, that immediately you mention a word like desire. We know that. We know that word. That's an experience that we have, and I think that's the focus in Romans 8. What is being described there is an experience. Now, it's not reduced to experience. It not It's not simply experientialism, but what Romans 8 is doing, we should expect, a particular kind of experience in the Christian life.
1: So the charismatics are actually right, (laughs) that if you know God, you should experience something, rather than maybe churches I've grown up with, where the Spirit is either completely absent, or just sits there quietly and keeps pointing to Jesus all the time, right? (laughs) That's that's the only role. Well, we didn't
2: say what kind of experience. Sure. I I think that's next. Yes, Uh, because, you know, what she's doing in chapter four, she's actually dealing with charismatics. And part of the problem is, oddly enough, that you get, you know, either in the church type or in the sect type, which is the charismatics in this instance, you get an unbalanced view. And so in either instance, you know, in the church type, we're going to get this linear view of the Trinity that's the way that the Nicene Creed depicts it. She's not saying it's unorthodox. She's just saying that, well, even in orthodoxy, there is room for a kind of subordinate role for the Holy Spirit. And, I, you know, what does that mean, a subordinate role to you? If when we talk about the subordination of the Holy Spirit, what is the practical result of that subordination?
1: in the life of the church and we've experienced or what should be
2: <laughs> what what is in the li- what actually happens not what should be in other words that we shouldn't subordinate no that's
1: right that's right
2: but yeah. once we do when we talk about subordinating the spirit whether we're yeah. talking about doctrinally or in our practice what yeah, is yeah. that what does that look like to subordinate to spirit sure well can i just
1: share very quickly when i went for my current ministry job as a baptist pastor they gave me a whole bunch of questions to answer to try and figure out if it was theologically where they thought i should be and i knew what they were asking me but even then i I mentioned the spirit i just mentioned the spirit in connection with prayer and when i had the interview they had questions about that answer it's like can you explain what you meant by that it's like uh it meant that god is at work in our prayers (laughs) it's like it's like think yeah this people are just so it's obviously that they've reacted against maybe the charismatic church they're reacting against and they don't even use the word subordination but that's actually for them it's not even that it's beyond subordination they're just afraid of any spirit talk
2: (laughs) that's it that's it
1: yeah i don't know dan have you had any what's what's your experience with
3: but the one that I was thinking about in the last question was the obvious one that we talked about, I think, in the earlier class about sub- subordination of women. And I think that was one of Sarah's points that once you get the Trinity wrong, then you can justify the role of woman, and that sort of all comes out of it. Mm-hmm. I think that was my experience. But I'm still, because I'm, I'm, it's, I'm exposed to so many people with really strong viewpoints. I'm still not sure about the role of women, so maybe that can be clarified for me while we get
1: there. Well, women are very dangerous, then, see, because they're <laughs> attractive. And because they're attractive, they're very... Da- you know, I I was reading a, a woman writes about all this, and she was making fun of that whole idea that if you have a really attractive woman at the front, it's going to distract men. And so she said... Oh, we can't have this brother. He's too good looking. He's just too handsome, this man. He's gonna nobody ever says that, but it's like, well, it's the same logic. So.
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one is gonna be a hard nut to crack for many churches that they are going to depend upon particular passages yeah. that talk about you know, a particular role for women. You know, what what they mean is the subordinate role. So we have... Well, egalitarian
1: and complementarian.
2: Yeah, yeah, complementarian. Well, they're same but different, which means sort of like apartheid. Uh, <laughs> that's right, that's what it is. <laughs> and egalitarianism is a, an acknowledgement of, of equality. You know, while this may seem a peripheral issue, I think it's not. She... In bringing it front and center is correct in doing so. This goes against my own church. Uh, you know, I've taught a little fundamentalist college till they, you know, that I couldn't survive believing what I believe. They found that you went one of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, what I'm describing, uh, many groups are resistant. So there is a kind of patriarchal, you know, male dominant. Churches, hierarchy, and I would say the tenor of the Christianity then takes that on. That is, you're not going to be able to suppress, subordinate, oppress without that then having an impact on the whole tenor of your faith. And that the whole
1: church, the way the church feels, the vibe of the church, it's just so male, so blokey. So, you know, I have all these young women in my congregation and I grieve for them because the smarter they are, the more thoughtful they are, the more intelligent they are, the more gracious and kind, the less likely they are to be able to either survive in this church or stick around for long enough. And to be fair, I've had to say to a few of them, "I want you, I want your faith to survive. I want you to grow. I want you to be everything God wants you to be, a church like this one and all the other ones that are similar to this in Sydney. And to be fair, I don't know there's that many church that I'd be happy with, because then sometimes, you know, you have the liberal,
2: I don't know, anything goes. It's a bit of a mess. So that is the that is the issue. We're all having to negotiate this. Yeah. And none of us can point and say, oh, well, we should be like the, them people. But, yeah, you're right, Dan, that where the Holy Spirit, where there has been a correct emphasis, where there has not been a subordination of the Holy Spirit, That this is the depiction, you know, in the early church, that uh, there is this role for women that's given, but also then open discussion as we begin this, uh, talking about desire and even erotic desire. You know, we're we're in the midst of a, we've discussed this in a, a sexual crisis. It is across the board, Roman Catholic, evangelical, there's no group, you know, that isn't experiencing this. There must be something wrong. And I think there is that at least part of this is theological, that there is, there's a sexual crisis because we don't quite know what to do with human sexuality, eroticism. And I think that her book and the, her approach then is a, uh, openly, you know, it's addressing this in a healthy way. My own work, you know, that. The last class we did on Romans 8, there also we, we talked a lot about human sexuality. The idea is that that is not an end in and of itself. You know, that's true of any human form, that any imminent frame, we don't want to put an absolute weight on it. But it's also true that if we don't read the imminent frame, what is uh, in regard as in some way having a role in the transcendent, then we're going to misuse it. I think that's precisely what has happened, is that sexuality is a kind of hot-button focus. It's a means of doing identity Mm. for many people, and it doesn't matter what sexuality we're talking about. I don't know if you all follow bad American politics, but we just had a senator actually from our state here in Missouri who is just atrocious. I mean, he's just a kind of despicable, I shouldn't, you know, human being, but but he is this kind of right wing, white, evangelical. And he gave a speech that he's talk talking about that the culture has emasculated. Men are not taking, you know, men need to, and so it's more of the same. It's more of the kind of chauvinistic white. So, America needs more testosterone and more violence, is yeah. Yeah, we that's right. We need more guns, more testosterone. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and the woman who wrote the book, and I, I can't claim to have read the book, Jesus and John Wayne. Oh, brilliant! Yes, I haven't
1: again, I have I've, I've heard a couple of interviews with uh, yes, yeah, she's from um Calvin College, is it right? College?
2: Yeah, yeah, they interviewed her and got her taken. Of course, she nailed it. And what she's depicting, or you know, the failure of the church is this kind of male patriarchal privileging of you know masculine, and of course the way we've described that in psychoanalytic terms is phallocism or onto theology, or you know, there's a lot of ways of saying this that there's a particular tenor in the theology that just is is going to go with that. And, and don't
1: you think, Paul? The tragedy of all that is that it's so anti, anti Jesus, anti the gospel. Because if God reveals Himself supremely as a helpless, beaten, blooded, weak man on a cross, what does that do to, to your ideas of masculinity and you know violence and macho? Like yeah. it's it's a complete opposite. It's actually saying no. Actually, you're you're walking down a different path. That's satanic Absolutely. stuff.
2: Absolutely. And I think that, in other words, we can't talk about these things as if they're side issues. Yeah. This this is the gospel. You know, what is yeah. the gospel doing? Well, yeah. it, it is, it's creating a new kind of humanity in which, you know, the oppression that is there, I, I know we've done this, you know, that this is my understanding of... That's uh, good to hear it again. While it the, again. The, <laughs> the the, you know, what the identity that we bear in Genesis is male-female. It's not either one or the other, but it's this shared, you know, the two shall become one, then Paul describes in, in Corinthians and also in Ephesians, you know, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So there is the, the continuum. Oh, sexuality, male-female, gender, And it's a continuum right into our belief system. Paul doesn't, he can't separate those things, that the one is integrated into the other. And so what is taking place? You know, I think Galatians is a key passage that we're no longer doing identity by male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greek. It's not that those categories are necessarily obliterated, but in the church, those categories are suspended as modes of doing identity.
1: Is that the language, because I, I often try and help my very Chinese church think about their new identity in Christ, and I, I go to that verse in Galatians as well as other, and I use the word of transcending your ethnic identity. It's, it doesn't obliterate it. They will be Chinese till so they die, <laughs> but because they're so Chinese, often their identity in Christ, just it's it's hard for them to understand.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, no, we're all going to come, there's no way I'm going to stop being what I am, male and white and American, uh, or that Japanese are going to, you know, that Japanese, oh, do they need to become like me? Mm. So, But but what happens in the case of all of us, culturally, this is a very hard thing to nuance. Mm. Because it's not that the church obliterates culture, Mm. it's that it, in some way, brings about a restoration, a fulfillment, a completion, and a full appreciation for. None of us have to cease being identified with a particular culture. You know, in Japan, this you know, in some places it's true here actually, but in Japan it's even starker that really the being Japanese is the main part of people's identity. It functions like a religion. In fact, the religions in Japan are in some way subservient to that main thing of being Japanese. I think that's fairly typical. And then you look at all of the elements involved in being Japanese. Some of it is just very simple things. Japanese people speak the Japanese language. I'm quoting somebody there. Of course, that's a ridiculous statement that I just made. But actually, this is a Japanese linguist. He says, okay, what is a Japanese person? A Japanese person is someone who speaks the Japanese language. And that's the belief system. That is that the language bears the spirit of the race. Of course, even the word race is hmm. mistaken. It's not really here. A... So we need to deconstruct all that, not to obliterate it or do away with it, but to put it in its proper place. And that's true of all of us. That being a part of the body of Christ is a process of reinculturation. You know, I like the idea that that the church, in a sense, is a culture, but... What do you think of um,
1: the early church, some of the early church, speaking of the church
2: as a third race? You know, well, first of all, there's a problem with the word race. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, Actually, that is itself a kind of construct.
1: Construct, yeah.
2: But Jew-Gentile gets at it because that's an ethnicity. The point is, well, you cannot insist on the absoluteness of being one or the other and be a Christian. Now, you can be, ethnically, you could go into the church and practice that Paul's still practicing a lot of Judaism, and some of the churches are. He has no problem with the practices, but his point is, yeah, but the practices cannot be made a necessity or a requirement for Gentiles. And so he's trying to meld, I mean, that's the story of the early, the first century church. Mm. He's trying to meld these people together, and that's never an easy thing to do. We've got a lot of terms. We use the terms and we think we know, you know, simple terms like religion, race. We imagine that we know what those things mean. They're slippery terms, aren't they? They're all slippery terms.
3: You're talking about this is really like a, a complete Christianity, becoming Christian becoming alive in Christ through the Holy Spirit is a complete new way of of being mm. human. How on one hand you've got people like you are saying for your senator or people who reify like this masculinity and say that this is the gospel versus like the complete opposite of that. And I was thinking about like the, what Jesus says about we're like the bride of Christ and how that just doesn't really gel whatsoever with this kind of like, <laughs> aggressive way of being christian the constantinian christianity and like i had this conversation the other day about um you guys are familiar with mark driscoll there's this this podcast that's been kind of going a bit viral it's called the rise and fall of mars hill and i've not actually listened to it but this person i was talking to was saying how like it breaks down why mark driscoll became so famous and within the the cultural environment the social environment his age his demographic all these complex factors led to create Mark Crystal kind of like the Trump factor or kind of like any problem isn't just the problem by itself it's like the environment has created the problem my point to that I was picking up to you from what you guys were saying how like this kind of um breaking in of the spirit comes from A right thinking, a new thinking, like a renewal of the mind at like a deeper level, where like on one hand you have like evangelical Christianity trying to explain away a Mark Driscoll by saying, oh, he's like a problem of society, Mm. but not his theology. But what I was picking up is like, and what I've been thinking about is that like actually Mark Driscoll was a problem of his own theology of the way that he viewed Christianity because he reifies that exact model that you guys are just talking about of like the problem with the church is it's being emasculated and Jesus is a warrior God with a big sword and blood on his cloak and once yeah. you get the trinity right once again I think that's the point that I'm getting from Sarah's book once you get the trinity right and what Sarah interlinks with like gender roles and the, re- the orientation of desire like I think that Trump and Driscoll and problems are like subconscious belief systems that actually leads to people becoming who they are and I think that that podcast you know um the rise and fall of Mars Hill that was written by a whole lot of evangelicals so of Mm. course they're not going to attack the very heart of the issue they're going to again they're going to say oh society a whole bunch of um corrupt people create a a corrupt leader kind of like a broken system that believes in like a violent atonement and like i want to link it back to sarah's book in the class but like there's something deeper that i'm trying to put my finger on and again Mm. it goes back to desire and sort of your work paul about a non-contractual reading of romans really starts to lift the lid on what's going on here in my own life and in the lives of people around me
2: yeah yeah actually i i've been aware of that podcast i've been afraid to <laughs> listen to it that it would be so disgusting i think you're you're correct that well they're going to mark it up to a per a particular personality or a particular type and of course it's much deeper than that it is theology and it's theology out of that theology has flown as has flowed a particular sociology and so in this country and actually this, Goes right back to the movement, the Christian churches, churches of Christ. There is then what is called church growth philosophy mm-hmm. or theory. Mm-hmm. Donald McGavern, uh Rob he, he, he was in my thesis. <laughs> okay. Well, Donald McGavern, I was a disciples of Christ.
1: Oh, yes, that's right.
2: Missionary. At one time, this the group which I'm a part had more mega churches than anybody. Oh wow. And it's precisely because of Donald McGavern says, okay, this is our goal is to grow big churches. And by big churches, he means lots of people. And then he gives a prescription of how to do that. One of the early preachers, he's now retired, but he started a church in Louisville, Kentucky. I think he started with like 50 people. I don't know if they have 20,000 now, but over 10,000 people. He got the work of Donald McGavern, read it and said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Bob Russell, you know, so every, all of our schools here, they have a Bob Russell school of preaching or something. So Mark Driscoll, all all I'm saying is that there is just a phenomenon that I think all of these mega churches and super preachers and they're nearly bound to fail, not because they're transgressive. In other words, the reason they're successful is also the reason they're going to crash and burn. It's all mm. the very thing, the idea of being a CEO, being a, a strong leader. And eventually, of course, that will mm. show itself either. I, his was just abusive people, not sexual. He, he was bullying people. Yeah, yeah bullying. he's just a bully. But that's the way he grew a big church, because he is a bully. Yeah. But actually, that's what was recommended to it. Yeah, yeah, strongly that. Yeah, I mean, a very quick thought.
1: I, I've heard Mark Driscoll a number of times on podcast and some of his sermons. There was one talk he gave where he tells the whole Bible story in such a way that it tells you why he is who he is. So he says, God has always been a warrior. God is a warrior. He is one who kills his enemies. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it all and that. And this is the key. And then when Jesus comes, that's different. That's just for a time, but then we're back here in Revelation with the warrior again and the sword. And I think, oh my God, he just flipped the gospel.
2: Yeah, he flipped,
1: yeah. and and that's yeah. So that was his thing. That okay, if that's your gospel, then yeah, you're not a you're not a Christian. <laughs> you're a heretic.
2: Yeah, I don't know what that is. That's. A-
1: and that's sort you, of the you can
2: see how people can read the Bible
1: like that, right? You can see how you get that. Yeah.
2: And it's not a minority, it's a majority. That's sort of why I started, you know, forging plowshares, the very center of this thing, is the peaceableness, that the, the yeah. peace. That is the very heart of the gospel. It is a nonviolent gospel all the way through. There's nothing violent about who God is. There's nothing violent about the atonement. And there should be nothing violent about Jesus' followers. That's not most peoples in, in this country. that doesn't get it. Not. I, I just think the, the Bible,
1: the Bible is a problem. You've got to bring a lot of hermeneutical sophistication and nuance. Because it's just so easy to get a sense that, no, God is violent. Okay, of course he's violent. Look at him. Okay. And like like you have to, yeah, I guess you have to be taught to read the Bible. You know, with Revelation, just quickly here, my understanding that uh, that passage when Jesus shows up on a white horse with a sword and there's blood everywhere, for us to understand that peacefully is that if you read those verses carefully enough, that blood is not other people's blood. It's his blood
2: that in other words, that Jesus does bear a sword, what kind of sword? His tongue. Yeah. That's a very different sort (laughs) of instrument, you know. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, it's not that God comes and slaughters people. Uh, I think that then entails, you know, what is the gospel and uh, the very center of it, because we were describing things that, as I understand what the gospel is, it's this new form of humanity that is being shaped. I see that as a process that's unfolding. And so the, the three sociological types don't bother me so much because I do see this thing as a process and we can actually make progress. You know, we can do better.
1: <laughs> yeah, and this is where Sarah's emphasis on contemplative prayer and the life of prayer and the spirit is that process which changes us and grows us into those peaceable people.
2: Yeah, so that that's the it's a practice that that's being a Christian, having the Holy Spirit, involves us in a particular discipline, a particular set of practices, uh, a particular understanding of the way of God's communion and communication with us, and so that's all there in Romans eight. The Trinitarian understanding what who the Trinity is is an, is grounded in human experience, in prayer. That little phrase you can take verse 11 of chapter 8 romans 8 yeah if the spirit of him who
1: raised jesus from the dead is living in you okay he who raised christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you
2: did you hear the three persons of the trinity the first little phrase if the spirit of him Mm -hmm. him is the father Mm -hmm. yeah who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit, the Father, the Son. There is a Trinitarian logic there. And, of course, the next phrase is incorporating us into that. Mm. And incorporation, I don't know that we need to dwell there. Everybody understands that we're participating in it. In this, I think the Eastern Church gets it correct that a kind of theosis or a uh, divination—
1: in the West, we work with, with transactional models, don't we? There's a lot of transactional, contractual model.
2: Yeah, and it is a participatory yeah. understanding. In other words, the experience that's described in Romans 8, there's nothing mystical about it in one sense. I think that we can enjoy this experience of life in the Trinity, and we're doing it right now, that we have a connection with people. You know, being in Christ, First of all, we've talked about we have the faith of Christ. You know that Christ is not an object, but we are co-participants. We view God then from the position of Christ, the the experience of Christ. And this part was where I had a bit of critique.
1: Oh, Sarah on um, suffering. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I read once. <laughs> I need to read it again. But you made a distinction between two types of suffering.
2: Yeah, very helpful. I'm happy to be critiqued. On my critique. My understanding was that you
1: were concerned about the danger of reifying suffering, that, that it can be quite harmful to the individual, to a community, to our view of God. My only thought at the end of your blog post, which I thought I got to read this again carefully, <laughs> is how to tell the difference between the two, which I think you, you talk about, but I didn't quite, you know, h- how would I know when I'm going through one and not the other? How would I know when someone that I'm trying to help is going through one type of suffering and not the other? I don't know.
3: Close to my experience. That was actually how I got into this whole Fortune class thing. I whoop when Paul was just just summarizing really his heart behind this whole project, because when you go through pain and suffering, you you become super clear on theology and what God's role is about the whole thing. And again, that majority that we talk about, the majority of Christians attribute pain and suffering to God Mm. as a tool that he uses to bring about the greater good. That doesn't work when you're experiencing it yourself. Hence why I'm here. But that sounds really interesting about Paul's critique it's probably something he said to us before in the past that these ways of creating a theodicy around God's use of pain and suffering, Mm. they fall away. And if that's what Sarah Copley is actually doing, then I'd have to yeah. I have to
1: read that more carefully because I agree with Paul that it's not a very useful tool. No. And, and just can I um, just say with Dan, when my wife was diagnosed with cancer and she went through chemotherapy, I think what it did for me as far as God and theology is like, as I'm experiencing this, if God is who people are telling me he is, like, this is for your own good, you're going to learn stuff, like, I want nothing to do with him. He is the worst. And so, made it clear who is the only God worthy of worship and of love and devotion and trust. A God who is love, a God who is your companion, who suffers with you, right? So, so it became very clear that that other God has got nothing to say to me. I can't possibly love him, respect him, like him in any way. How could I? It's like,
2: you know, in this chapter, she talks about Christomorphic pain. Yeah. And I went back and I realized even back in the chapter when she's talking about Romans 8. I'm not sure that we can talk about Romans 8 without talking about Romans 6 and 7, because what is happening is that Romans 8, I believe, is a resolution to the problem that is posed in Romans 7. And Romans 7, you know, there's suffering in both instances. I don't believe the suffering in Romans 7 I, I'm not sure you can survive that suffering. In other words, this is the suffering in human interiority. Paul is crying out at the end of this, who will rescue me? Yeah. I think this is the this is self-destructive suffering. It is the suffering that would cause someone to harm themselves or to harm others, that it's an yeah. unbearable suffering. Yeah. The suffering of Romans seven, I'm saying. Of course, there's only one person in Romans, you know, seven, seven and following. It's just Paul or it's I or it's, you know, this whoever this is. He's describing a pain is the worst form of human suffering. And I'm saying that because he says that because in the next chapter, he's going to describe all kinds of suffering, you know, sword and hardship and famine and and, you know, everything that Uh, And then he's going to describe the sources of that suffering, principalities and powers and the future and the past and all of these things. This sort of suffering is put in its place. So there is a a form of suffering that I think is deadly, and it, Mm. it is death. It is a kind of living death. That's the suffering of Romans 7. I believe that what Christianity is partly about is that we're saved from out of that. You know, What is when we use the word saved, I think we need to identify saved from what? Well, Mm -hmm. saved from this orientation to death that is deadly, that is painful, that is agonistic. You know, that's the the depiction of pain and suffering. Sarah Coakley, she never talks the way that I'm talking now, that I know of. She never makes the contrast between Romans 7 and 8. And as a result, we get a lot of talk with her that is actually, even though she's quoting St. John of the Cross, she's interpreting him in a very Western fashion. There would be two readings of St. John of the Cross, who talks about the dark night of the soul. In a Western understanding, that is, oh, well, that's the normal, that's the Christian experience of coming to a deep spirituality, but oh. I think, in fact, in an Eastern reading of St. John of the Cross, that, that that's seen as a suffering that is brought about due to human sinfulness, and she never makes that distinction, as if, in other words, I, I, in a sense, I don't have a problem. She describes suffering, and of course, we all know there is suffering, but I'm afraid that she's valorizing it, like oh well, if you suffer, then you're experiencing the deep things of God. I'm with you, Rob. If that's the if that's the requirement, no, thank you. I'll just be a shallow person. Yes. You know? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> because it, it's also the
1: fact that how come I get to go through this? Am I lucky? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> everybody, everybody else is. You know, this is helpful. Saint John of the Cross. Yes, I've only ever heard the Western reading. Which means, yeah, it's, it's good for you. It's, 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 it's hard and painful, but it's spiritually wonderful. But, yeah. So you're saying the Eastern reading would say the dark night of the soul is not something God has sent, yeah. nor something that he wants you to go through. Is that?
2: Yeah, yeah. And say, you know, a reading, a kind of Western reading. And my point is that, in other words, Sarah Coakley kind of mixes all this language up. Yeah. And, and, of course, a lot of this revolves around what we think happened to Jesus on the cross. You know, there is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One reading would be, oh, that God abandoned Christ, that he is truly turned. You know, this is the typical penal substitution. God turned his back on Christ. But, of course, the quotation is, what is it, Psalm 22 And I believe we have to read the psalm and understand in context, even in our reading of scripture, if we don't put it in context, we'll miss the fact that it's never normative to feel that God's not present for us. That is, in fact, a painful sort of understanding. And what is being overcome, I think, in the cross, that what Christ is bearing is that he's doing away with that kind of separation, that gap. In fact, prayer need not be the kind of painful thing that I think Sarah Coakley is describing. But mm-hmm. I don't think the beginning point of prayer is what she's describing at all. But for me, the beginning point of prayer is just resting in the presence of God, the, the goodness and peace and love and joy. That's Romans 8. There is a picture of the pangs of birth. But Mm -hmm. even that pangs of birth, the joy of having a child puts the pain, the birth pangs in their place. And I think that's, you know, Paul does use the same word. He uses the word for futility. Suffering is always a futility. There's never any, oh, God causes somebody to suffer. I don't believe there is such a thing as redemptive suffering.
1: I was about to ask about that term. Okay, yep. Keep going.
2: Because there is a suffering that may be involved in redemption, Uh but the suffering is not the thing. The suffering is a kind of byproduct of this new birth. And, of course, in all of this, we understand, oh, we're going to suffer. You know, she describes the suffering and the pain uh, almost, well, as a necessity. She reifies Mm. it. And mm. she describes it as that, oh, we have to go through this dark night of the soul, this aridness, this dryness, this feeling the absence of God. I don't think so. I, you know, it may be that we experience that, but I think the experience of that is in no way a necessity. And in no way should we link that with some sort of a necessary path to a deeper spirituality.
1: Sure. I really like what you're saying, Paul. I just, my whole life, though, what I've heard is the opposite of that, which is because I think people are trying to make sense of the suffering they're going through, right? They're trying to make sense of where God is in. Yeah. And then they say, He's in the suffering. And suddenly God gets intertwined with all this horrible stuff I'm going through. And I agree with you. The more I think about it, the more I've experienced it. Like, but why would He be doing this? Like, it doesn't, like, (laughs) doesn't He have a pill or something to help me grow? Like, I guess, yeah, so people are constantly wanting to know that when they're suffering, somehow God's okay with that because he's going to use it or he's going to
2: work in it, through it. I don't know. It, it's it's hard to talk to people about this. Coakley's two key passages are Romans 8 and then Philippians 2, 7, you know, the Kenotic, yeah. the kenotic passage with the self emptying, And, of course, one understanding of the self emptying is this is, Uh, god emptying himself of deity but i don't believe that's what we can't do that no no. we can't empty ourselves of deity and that's what paul is calling he said he's using christ as a model and of course the model is that what he did as a human being he did take the place of a servant uh he did you know his is a lowly place But I also think there's a kind of danger here. You know, there is the notion of a Christianity that he died so that I don't have to. I I think that in one sense that's wrong, that no, that we are called to take up our cross and follow him. But in another sense, we're not called to do what Jesus did. I can't experience the bearing of sin. He did that. I don't have to experience his agony in the garden. Sarah Coakley is going to talk, and she's doing this, she's talking the way that some Western mystics will talk, that she's going to say, oh, we have to go through a kind of dereliction, a kind of Gethsemane sort of experience.
1: Why do you think she wants to go there? What, what, what Why does she want to do that? What's the benefit of, of saying that?
2: I'm afraid that she's misunderstanding how we're joined to Christ. Oh, okay. In other words, that she's picturing suffering with Christ. And, of course, that's there in Romans 8. But what sort of suffering? Uh-huh. Not the suffering that Christ experienced in bearing sin. Paul lists the suffering in Romans 8. Sword, hardship, famine, uh, martyrdom. The characteristic of all that suffering is it's not that interior, uh, alienating, death-inducing Suffering of Romans seven—that it's something done to you.
1: Yeah, something from the outside. So then, then the whole idea of a Christian who is constantly wrestling internally with God, suffering through lots of dark nights of the soul. What's going
2: on there for that Christian? What what, going, what, what would what would he be doing wrong? <laughs> well, she says she says it. It's almost like you're going insane, and I would say, oh, it's not just. As if that it is oh. you're going insane, what do you do? just just stop it <laughs> well, in other words, that there's some forms of theology that yeah. encourage that there's forms of Methodism. you yeah. know this this if you want to look at the people in this country in the United States who are institutionalized
1: huh oh.
2: it <laughs> literally people are driven crazy by their religion yeah. because they can never. Get right. They could never. They still feel this struggle. You know the Roman seven struggle, uh, and they spend their lives literally. They're consumed by it. You know, you get a version of this in Calvinism. Jonathan yeah. Edwards, who was a brilliant preacher, you know, talking about the you know, the assurance. Well, his uncle never felt it. His uncle slit his throat. Yeah, because yeah. he couldn't get it. Yeah. And many of the people there, begin to have suicidal ideations.
1: yeah. And so yeah.
2: religion can kill you. yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it can induce pain and suffering. And that was the part of Coakley, I'm afraid, it kind mm. of began to bother me. Mm. And this thing, we don't have to go. That's not the nature of the depth of, of no. spirituality. A, as, a, as a pastor, can I ask you, pastorally, what could I say to someone
1: who seems... To either be stuck there or wants to go there or keeps finding themselves back there? Should I just point him to Romans 8?
2: <laughs> well, this is actually this is kind of interesting if you would ask Matt this question. Oh, he's Matt,
1: a chaplain. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. You know, Matt, when he first came to me, he was, uh, he'd just come off the streets and he kept saying, Yeah, but I'm a Romans 7 kind of guy. Oh, okay. And I said, Yeah, but that's not really who you are. Who you really are is a Romans 8 person. And so we're all going to experience a Roman seven, and it, we may it may plague us. We may have neurosis. We may have compulsions that we feel like we can't get rid of, mm-hmm. and we can involve ourselves in that so deeply that we can imagine, oh, this thing is defining me. And of course, the simple answer is, yeah, but that's not who you are. That thing that has a grip on you actually is not you at all. And here, I think, just a. a Freudian view of this, you know, the least interesting thing about people is their neuroses. Because neuroses all look the same. They're mechanical. It's like a machine. Once a person describes their the nature of the neurosis, it's highly predictable. And that was Freud. Freud got bored with neurosis because, you know, this is evil.
1: Predictable, you mean repetitive? It's just the same thing. It all
2: looks, in other words, he's doing a diagnosis. You know, any yeah. disease that you do a diagnosis of the de- disease, the only reason you can do a diagnosis is there is a characteristic form of the disease, mm-hmm. and that's true in uh, human the human psyche that when it goes bad, it always looks the same. So we, you know, we're kind of secretive. You know, I yeah, I got this kind of screwy stuff going on in my head, <laughs> but that's but that's not you. And, screwy and that, screw, that screwy stuff, that's universal. Don't yeah. think that that's your little private thing. No, that's just universal. And so, you know, somebody asked Freud, why don't you do a, an analysis of Dostoevsky? Mm-hmm. And he said that wouldn't be interesting at all because he's a gambler. He's an alcoholic. What's interesting about Dostoevsky is he's a genius in this creative literature and this, you know, that's the way we should treat ourselves. That yeah, we all we all may have Roman 7 tendencies, but don't think yeah. that's who you are or that's what defines you. You're defined by something else. And I think we just have to live into that reality. That's that's, that's the reality that that mm-hmm. we can claim for ourselves and begin mm-hmm. to live in it. And it's not again, I think it's just a basic appreciation of other people of Life of uh, love—it's yeah. all around us.
1: So, so this links back to uh, Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity, doesn't it? That blog post you wrote—that we need to be finding God in life, finding God in in the beauty of our friendships and marriages—and it's quite That's a beautiful, a, quite a beautiful view. Isn't
2: it? Yeah, and and as long as the church type and this is the way I was reading Bonhoeffer, as long as that's dominant, we'll tend to view the things of God, oh, that's transcendent, that's beyond. And, of course, what we're getting in uh, a religionless Christianity, I think what he meant, of course, the church had failed in institutionally,
0: mm-hmm. but,
2: of course, Christianity hadn't failed because here is this genius that this is one of the most fruitful times theologically, Think of the geniuses that come out of Germany, that they do have an appreciation for a Christocentric Christianity that is, I think, the very characterization of it, the very nature of it, is that it is no longer grounded in a kind of Constantinian institutional form. It all came
1: together. Paul
2: Paul pulled it all together at the end.
1: (laughs) I, I love it. I
3: love it. Uh, I'm, I'm just completely saturated as you guys are in Constantine Christianity which frames Romans 7 as the normative experience. Yeah. When you put it like Paul does in all his work and it's something different and actually Romans 8 is where we're heading as Christians that's the experience of the spirit I know that experience you know and then it reframes this other thing this, this death drive, this orientation, these other things that are outside, as you can actually see them as what they are. And you sort of realize, hey, actually, God doesn't hate me. I'm not being intentionally, you know, yeah. put under the hammer. Because you know, that, that's what the, the other reading of this whole thing does. Yeah. It's all part of God's plan. This is the way he shows his love towards us. Um, I love it. I love the way you summarize it up and it makes so much sense. And, and I know that Paul's experience in Japan and the problems that they have there with like mental health and
2: mm-hmm.
3: self-harm and all this—that it, it's just mm-hmm. an
1: exemplification of that whole
3: problem.
2: Oh, there's huge mental health problem in Japan. Yeah.
1: I, I love that thing you said, Dan, which is like, how do we get to a place where we think the God who made us in love in his image, hates us, can't stand us, because we're dirty. I mean, no wonder lose, you. no wonder people walk away from Christianity, or or they lose their minds, or. Uh... Yeah,
3: yeah. When he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees the oh. sun. It's like <laughs> that's what not... happens to me.
1: <laughs> well, you you're, you're disgusting, Dan. I'm disgusting. He can't bear to see us. He wants to puke. <laughs> I mean, what kind of God is that in there? what does it that to me when i i deal with other people if that's how i think god views me how am i supposed to love people i mean even if i try to love them sooner or later i'm going to hate them <laughs> right
2: yeah, yeah. so I, that's the experiential element we've just described it not yeah. any I, we're not describing some ecstatic mountaintop there may be mountaintops but we're describing everyday experience where we assume god's showing up the presence of God is made known to us all around us through other people and through uh, the relationships we have. Understand that most people don't have that. You know, most people don't ever really make a connection. Some people, yeah. they spend their life, I mean, it's the, the great tragedy that they spend their life in isolation yeah. and pain, never really make a connection.
1: Yeah. It, you know, if, if it, as I think of mission evangelism, wouldn't it be wonderful if our whole job in life was to go around being really good people, being good friends, and when other people experience the joy and beauty of life, to just go, that thing? Yeah, that's it. That, that That's God. <laughs> he loves yeah. you. It's like, what do you mean? Yeah, That's it. Rather than, you know, come to church, repent, you know, say the sinner's prayer. I mean... Obviously, there's there's more to to that than only, but just helping people uh, discern God's presence and fingerprints in their lives every day. Yeah,
2: right? yeah, that's
1: it. Yeah,
3: yeah. I am I, I, um, because you guys <laughs> know I've listened to so much Fortune cloud shares. I'm, I'm the biggest biggest fan here. But like one of the things that often comes up is this idea of theosis and like, it, like lacking from a lot of Western Christian, Christian and like. That the more I looked into that, that really makes sense of this whole conversation for me. Like just like us being transformed and becoming like more like Christ and light breaking into darkness, and that's this good news message that makes me feel okay about my life. You know, like that (laughs) this isn't the trajectory we actually, as you say, Paul. We're making progress here. Yeah, Yeah. Tomorrow can become clearer than yesterday, and it's actually like it's a hopeful message that. Actually, for people that struggle in life, like a lot of us, like you can look ahead and like God's breaking in, God's rescuing His creation. Of course, He He actually loves us, and He's mm. He's going around with His work of making things new in a newness of creation, and you know, getting right with what heaven means, and doing away with some of the simplicity on it. You know, like it's, it all just makes me feel good about life, I guess. Uh, I feel encouraged, just even this conversation makes me feel encouraged. Like you say, Paul,
1: we're doing it. This is, yeah. this is
3: the experience here.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: That, that was really good today, um, Paul and Dan, thank you. So, you know the thing about these conversations, I come away thinking, gosh, it, it feels like it's there, and then I go back to my
2: everyday life, surrounded by the people. Yeah, we all, need the, uh, we all need to go back to the well. Yeah. Great, great conversation. Guys. Glad we could do Regardless. it. Let's See you next nice. week. See you now.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical, and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.